So it's Mark 9, verse 1. And he said to them, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God has come with power. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. all sorts of things going on for us and in our minds and our hearts as we come together and even the early part of our gathering can sometimes maybe feel like we're just going so let's have a moment for, of silence just to reflect prepare our hearts and to pray in our own hearts Father God, we've just read your word, which is about your son, Jesus. Please now, by your spirit, would you still and quiet in our hearts so that we are ready to see him and to listen to him. For your glory. Amen. Great. Um, Spurs is um, my team that I support, uh, team that I love, and they've got this, or they used to in their old stadium, which I think they've now knocked down, have this um, banner across the stand that says this at the side of the pitch, the game is about glory. And whenever I saw it, I just loved it, because it just captures something of recognizing that football is so much more than 22 men or women just kind of kicking a ball around, whatever the kind of the critics say, but actually it is about 
the pursuit of something bigger and something greater. And of course, in the stadium there, it says it's about glory. And you know, I think we could have that kind of banner as the banner over all of human life, that it is all about glory. And the pursuit of our lives are the, is the pursuit and the chasing after glory. And, and when I say glory, I mean, uh, what is it that is ultimate value and worth? What is most weighty or, or most significant? What is truly beautiful and full of splendor? It's the pursuit of glory. And I know we don't say we're pursuing glory, but what else is it that we're looking for when we're craving to have the reputation as the best teacher in our school? Or what else is it looking for when we walk into a brothel? Or when we um, work all hours to be the most talented person on the orchestra? Or we uh, make ourselves sick so that we stay silly and attractive? See, the pursuit of glory is something that our lives are about. The pursuit of something beyond us is something that we're aspiring to. And the pursuit of a glory that we don't yet have, I think, for us, gives our life a certain sense of meaning and purpose. Actually gives us something to, 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 to aim towards and hauls us sometimes through hard times for good or ill in the hope that better days lie ahead. So if life is all about glory, then I want to say, look, well, that's actually not a wrong thing. That's a human thing. But so often that pursuit, we kind of get misdirected. We get kind of pulled aside towards shadow glories, hollow imitations of the true glory that we were made to know and to enjoy, and the true glory that we can have. Today is is incredibly simple, really. There's just one massive, absolutely revolutionary truth about glory, and two very simple things that we can do in response. And, and here is the, 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 the simple but profound revolutionary truth. It is that Jesus is totally and absolutely glorious. Jesus is, if you like, the true glory. Here we are in, in Mark chapter 9, and Jesus is heading up a mountain with his three best mates. And we might think, because we've kind of seen this kind of thing in, in Mark before, that they're going for a bit of time out, a bit of retreat, a bit of a break. Uh, and maybe that's something of what's going on, but it isn't just that. These three guys are going up this mountain, they don't know it, but for an absolute treat. Because mountains in the Bible story are the place where people encounter God and where God reveals himself and his glory to them. And when that happens, that has such a significant impact on the people that encounter God in his glory, that it just changes everything for them. Things are never the same again. And so sure enough, this trip up Mount Hermon in northern Israel will not disappoint. And we read in verse 2 that Jesus is transfigured before them. Funny word, transfigured, isn't it? But it just means transformed. And normally you think of transformed as something changing from one thing to, to another thing, something becoming new and better. And that's often what we mean. But here, that isn't quite what it means. It actually means that Jesus is revealing who he is already. What he has always been and will always be like. And as he is transformed or transfigured between these three men, there's there's two particular things uh, that that Mark shows us they see. 
two physical things that they see with their eyes that are real before them. But the significance isn't in kind of the physical things they see, but actually what they see spiritually in it. Because remember, in Mark at the moment, this is all about spiritual sight coming, about spiritual realities being shown. So here's the first thing that they see. They see the perfection of God. We read about it there in verse 3, where we read that Jesus' clothes are dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. Mark is telling us this isn't just some kind of trick or some new amazing washing powder or whatever else, but it's something from out of this world that these men are seeing. No one in the world could do this as this man Jesus kind of literally kind of shines bright before them. You know, in the Bible story, the quality and and the cleanliness of clothing people wear is this running theme that picks up on people's moral cleanness. It's kind of an illustration of what people are like on the inside. So we see it lots of places, but you go back to Moses, and he tells the people of Israel, God's people, to wash their clothes as part of devoting themselves to God. It's kind of like if you're going to be devoted to God, you kind of, you've got to have, have clean clothes as well. Uh, and then we read in great detail about the beautiful and refined work gear that the priests who work in the temple have to wear, with its gold trim and its intricate detail, and, uh, and, and it's cleaned and it's purified, and it's beautiful stuff. And, and, then, and then Zechariah, when you think of that's what the priests are to look like, that's why Zechariah's vision... I've lost everyone. Iris, so good to have you with us. Um, you've totally ruined the start of my sermon, but that's okay. We're so glad you're here. We missed you a lot as well. We'll, we'll maybe hear from you a bit more later, but it's lovely to have you back. So, so the priest has this beautiful dress and, 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 and intricate. And so then when Zechariah sees this vision so many years later, it's absolutely shocking because he sees those priestly garments on the priest Joshua. But those priestly garments are torn and tattered and dirty. And we read that that's a symbol of, of the uncleanness of God's people. And then there's the great hope in John's vision of the end of time where we see the fine and the radiant clothes of God's morally perfected people, like a beautiful bride on her wedding day, made beautiful to live with God forever. You see, clothing illustrates moral categories. And here is Jesus. And here these guys are looking at him. And he is dazzling the whitest and the brightest and the most brilliant clothing. Nobody has seen anything like this before in real life. Some people have seen visions of this kind of stuff. But these guys are seeing something quite unique. Because we all do. We all use clothing to say something about who we are or or who we want to be. And, And that's just as true here. This is a window into the deep and the profound truths about who Jesus is and who he has always been. This is showing us his moral goodness, his brilliance, his perfection, his purity, his beauty, his rightness, his worth. It's showing us his glory. His glory is on display. And Jesus himself says, we read it in John 17, that he enjoyed glory with the Father before the world even began. This is the kind of glory that these guys have an insight to. 
You see, what's happened is that glory has been veiled. It's been hidden from the disciples and other people because it's kind of been, it's been veiled in the, humi- the, the humility of humanity. He himself took on a frail human body like ours. But here, just for a few moments on this mountain, the outward and the visible nature of Jesus is transformed. It is transfigured to display his glory. To display his actual nature, who he actually is. The nature that soon he's going to take back on forevermore. And, and, or, or at least display forevermore. He, he has it all the time. So if you like, these disciples, what they're doing is they're, they're glancing back and they're looking forward into his eternal glory. For a brief moment for them, faith becomes sight. That's why John, one of these guys who saw this later, writes, We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Here is the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, and he is just perfect in every way. He's just glorious in absolutely every way. No wonder Father God so loves him, eh? No wonder he can't contain his delight over him. He's glorious, he's perfect, he's amazing. The question is, do we see the perfection of Jesus this morning? Do we see his glory? The second thing these guys see is they also see... Oh, sorry, I had that verse there. They also see the presence of God. Presence of God. It's there in verse 7 in this cloud that appears around and covers them. So this isn't Mark's weather report because they're high up in the mountains. But this cloud is none other than the Shekinah glory. That is the very presence of God on earth. The very presence of God with people. In this scene, it's representing the presence of, of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. And that same cloud has appeared in the Bible story before. It accompanied God's presence on mountains before, like when Moses went up the mountain to meet with God, and we read that it was a mountain of cloud and of fire. It's like the cloud that traveled before and behind God's people as they came were freed from Egypt and headed to Canaan. We read that there was a cloud that guided them by the day. It's the same cloud that settled in the tent of meeting, uh, the tabernacle where the people met with God as they were in the wilderness. It's the same cloud that, that went and filled and settled in the temple that when on the mountain in Jerusalem where people met with God. Now this cloud of God's presence, the Shekinah glory, has not been seen by Jews for 600 years at this point. The last time a Jew saw the the visible depiction of the presence of God amongst Israel, it was one of the most terrifying and heartbreaking visions we have in the Bible. I think it's probably the lowest point of the Bible, aside from the cross. Because Ezekiel saw in a vision the cloud representing the presence of God rising up from the temple and departing Israel, departing Jerusalem, going to be of God's people in exile in Babylon. That was the last time this cloud was seen. 
And so now here we are with God's presence back in Israel. And Jesus, the Son of God, the one who is perfect, brings God's presence, brings in the glorious presence of God. And here is the cloud of the glory of God. You see, it's only in Jesus that we get to come into God's presence. It's only through him or by him. I mean, could you imagine being there? Can you imagine being there and seeing that? Well, it's not just these three friends of, of Jesus and him that were at the mountain we read, because they're joined by a couple of others. And we read that they are, in verse 4, Moses and Elijah. And it's worth just thinking for a moment, what are these guys doing here and why? Because they do seem a little bit out of place. Well, listen, it's not just that Moses and Elijah are used to this kind of experience. In the Old Testament, there are standout examples of people who go up mountains to meet with God, who see his glory, who hear his voice, who see him face to face. So they're kind of used to this in, in one sense. But, but for Moses and Elijah, this isn't just some kind of rerun of something they've seen and, and experienced and has happened to them before. No, this is, if you like, the performance of which all of their mountaintop experiences were dress rehearsals or, 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 or whatever else. This is the pinnacle and the fulfillment of their experience. You see, the whole story of the Old Testament, really, if you had to reduce it to just one idea, is the promise of Jesus coming to bring God's salvation. And that story closes in the very last chapter, in Malachi chapter 4, with the anticipation of him coming. And the promise with that of Moses and Elijah together as being those who prepare the way. So the Jews had this expectation of Moses and Elijah being those who prepare the way for the coming of God's. And if you like, here on the mountain, this is the handover meeting. This is the baton being passed. This is them saying, our job is done. Our job is done. One who is greater than us is here. The one who is the very perfection and the very presence of God himself is here. This is us coming just to say we're done. Over to you. Helps us make sense of these kind of slightly random conversations that happen on the mountain and on the way down. Peter, James, and John are looking on, and they're quite frankly terrified, as as you would be. And Mark tells us they haven't got a clue what to say. Of course, it doesn't stop Peter trying, does it? If you know Peter, he's going to have a go. And so Peter's kind of like, "You guys sticking around? You, You want me to pitch you tents? We could stay. We can we could hang out here for a few days together." And just after he said that, you can just you can hear kind of Mark's satire as he's just like, they didn't know what to say. <laughs> but you can't really blame Peter, can you? He says it's good for us to be here. It is a good place to be, isn't it? Enjoying and basking in the glory of Jesus. You can't blame him for wanting that moment to last a little longer. Let's just stay at this mountain. Just settle in. Let's have some time hanging out. I mean, Moses, Elijah, and Jesus in all his glory. Doesn't get much better, does it? But no, Moses and Elijah, we're not here to stay, Peter. Our work is done. The time of promise has passed. Now the time of fulfillment is here. God is here and his kingdom is coming with power. See, their work is done, but Jesus' work is not yet done to bring the kingdom. 
And so as Jesus and his friends come back down the mountain, and as they talk as they come down, you see, the disciples don't still kind of trying to get their heads around understandably what's going on. Well, I guess they're thinking something like this. Jesus, that is more like it. We knew you had that in you. Power, glory, might, authority. Listen, let's go. You pull that trick to Caesar and we're in. We're in charge. No more talk about rejection and suffering and dying. Think of the conversation last week. We've just seen Elijah, so surely now your kingdom is coming in power. So I guess that's maybe some of their expectations. I haven't seen and experienced that. But Jesus basically says that you're still not getting it. Yes, Elijah has come. He's talking about John the Baptist, who we've read about. The one who was suffered and rejected, who was imprisoned and beheaded. We saw that earlier in Mark. Well, Elijah's come, and he's had his suffering and his death, and he's prepared the way for the Son of Man to come, who too will suffer and be rejected and die. See, they're just not getting it still. Luke records this same event, and he tells us uh, this discussion that Jesus has with, um, with Moses and Elijah on the mountain. is all about his cross and his resurrection. That's the thing that they're talking about together. You see, what Jesus does is he covers his glory again in our shared humanity. And he walks back down the mountain with his friends. So that a few months later he can walk back up another mountain. The mountain in Jerusalem. Where on that mountain the glory of God will again be seen. And actually more brilliantly and more beautifully and more incredibly and more surprisingly shown to us and experienced. Because when he walks up that mountain on Good Friday, it's going to be the eternal, the glorious, the powerful, the perfect, the present Son of God, who this time offers himself up to death on a cross for sinners like you and me. And people will look away in disgust at him. They'll be revulsed by him. They won't see that that is the glory of God before them. See, that is what it is for this one, this perfect, this present one, to show and display the glory of God. And it is only after that has happened, and after he has risen from the dead in power and in glory, that these disciples will begin to make any kind of sense of this. So that's why he says to them, don't talk about this until that's happened. It's not going to make sense to you, it's not going to make sense to anyone else. You see, the kingdom is coming with power here. But remember the pattern of last week. It's going to be suffering first and glory later. What these disciples are getting is they're getting a glimpse of the glory. And that glimpse of glory will enable them, themselves, to follow their path of suffering well and persevering for glory later. See, because they've got the end game in sight now. They've seen the end game. They've seen where everything ends up. And so they can walk the path that they have to walk. If you were here last week, you will know that it was full on as we considered the call of discipleship. It was heavy. And I guess 
the fair question, which we had considered a bit last week, but we need to return to this week, is what is going to enable us to follow that way? What is going to enable us to not get sidelined and sidetracked by other shadow glories in life? Easier glories that kind of promise so much and deliver so much more quickly and so much more easily. Listen, that's what Hebrews says about Jesus. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Seeing the end game that enabled him to persevere, the joy and the glory that was set before him. Seeing Jesus' glory is going to help these disciples, and it will help us. It will help us to take up our cross, to deny ourselves, and daily follow him for the joy, for the true glory that he has set before us. That is how glorious, that is how amazing, that is how incredible Jesus is. He is the biggest and the greatest and the best glory. And life is all about glory. It is all about glory. It's about his glory. Not all of these other imitations of glory. That's a simple but profound truth about glory today. And it's two very simple and yet profound and life-transforming things that I suggest we ought to do to keep his glory front and center. Here's the first one. Look on him. Look on him. Mark has written down these events. He's given us it. So in one sense, we can experience it for ourselves. You see, only three of the disciples got to see this, didn't they? Peter, James, and John. And so I guess the other disciples only really got to hear about this later. Guys, um, and other guys like Mark, who probably Peter told this story and then Mark wrote it down. He, he didn't get to see this. He's, he's, he's like us, really. He's kind of hearing it secondhand. But listen, by his Holy Spirit and through his word, Jesus still reveals himself. He still reveals, he still shows his glory. And today he shows it to us through eyes of faith, to those who behold him by eyes of faith. And so here is the invitation. Shall we fix our eyes on Jesus? Shall we look at him? And keep looking and behold and look again and look again and behold and see. See his beauty and his glory. See his worth and his value. See his greatness and his perfection and his goodness and how awesome he is. Should we let our our vision and let our hearts be captivated by him? Should we look at him? Should we look at him early in the morning before we go about our day? Should we look at him when we're at home alone and no one's there with us? Should we look at him when we're together, we're in our community groups and we're talking and and trying to point one another to see him? Should should we look at him together when we're catching up for coffee and, and just chatting and hanging out? Can we help one another to love Jesus more and more by looking at him and beholding him and seeing him by contemplating him? You see, when we do that, 
when we do that and continue doing that and do that more and more, we ourselves are slowly but surely transfigured, transformed, transfigured into his likeness, into his image, and into his glory. It's promised in God's word. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed, exactly the same word as transfigured in Mark, into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Listen, beholding, seeing, looking at Jesus can be our, our mountaintop experience. We can have that kind of experience. And we need it. And we keep needing it. And yet, like these guys, we need to come down from that mountaintop and go on serving and following him. Our kingdom work is not yet done. And so if we're going to do that, the second thing we need to do, other than looking at him, is to listen to him. Do you see where where Father God is in this scene? We've seen Jesus, we've seen the Spirit. Father God is there in verse 7. In the voice that comes from the cloud, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Listen to him. You see, these guys are really not listening that well to Jesus. And so they kind of need this kind of transfiguration thing to shock them into action, to really listen to this Jesus, to have their spiritual eyes opened. You know, it's still amazing today how many people who claim to be Christians flat out refuse to listen to Jesus. How many of us in in our lives in so many ways will just refuse to listen to what Jesus says? And it's true there are some hard things to listen to. We saw that in the call of discipleship last week. But guys, that is not the end of the hard things that are coming in Mark's gospel. In the next few weeks, we're going to see Jesus is going to teach his disciples about hell. He's going to teach his disciples about divorce, about the coming day of God's judgment, about people failing to enter the kingdom. Are we going to listen to Jesus as we reckon with his words on those things? There's some hard things coming to us. We need to listen to this glorious Jesus. There are hard things to hear. But also, hear this. All of us, all of us need to get better at listening to what the good things are that Jesus has to say to us and the good things that he has to say for us. You see, we can be so busy listening to ourselves and our kind of internal thought monologue. We can be so busy listening to our friends and the people around us. We can be so busy listening to what the world around us says. All of those messages are loud and they're kind of high volume all of the time. Dare I say it, we kind of saw last week, maybe we even so busy listening to the sweet lies of Satan whispered into our ear through so many of those things. And so we're kind of sidetracked to our shadow glories because we don't realize what glory there is in Jesus that we already have in him. And we don't listen to what he has to say to us. We don't pay close attention. Because what Jesus says to us is greater and is truer and is more trustworthy and is more reliable. And you know what? When he says it, it happens. And you can, you can bank your life on it if he said it. 
And so we need to listen to Jesus when he invites the weary and the burdened to come to him and to find rest for our souls. We need to listen to him and say, yeah, that's true. I believe that and I'm going to live like that is true. We need to listen to Jesus when he, when he offers up his body broken and, and his blood that he says is poured out for us. We need to listen and receive. We need to listen when he says, you are my friends and not my servants. We need to listen when he says in his word that we are forgiven and that we are loved by him. Are you listening to this stuff? Are you this week? Have you been listening to this stuff? We need to listen when he says to us that we are accepted as children of God and adopted into his family, sons and daughters of God. We need to listen and believe it when he says we are cleansed and we are purified. We're not dirty. We're clean. We need to listen and believe it when he says we're empowered by the Holy Spirit. We have his resurrection life in us. We need to listen when he says that we are united to him and our life is now in him. We need to listen when he says that his life is now ours. His goodness belongs to us. We possess his very perfection. We need to listen when he says that our suffering achieves for us a glory that is beyond compare. That will just make the suffering feel just like nothing. So worth it. We need to listen when he promises us an unbelievable future, a rich inheritance that we enjoy for eternity. You see, this is the voice of the Good Shepherd. And we are sheep. We're his sheep. And we read that the Good Shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. He knows his sheep. He calls them by name. And we know him. And we listen to his voice. And he leads us. And so not only do we need to look on him, but why don't we also try and listen to him together? Hear his voice. And believe what he says. You see, we know our life is all about glory. And Mark shows us that he is the glorious one. He is the perfect one who brings God's presence in the fullness of glory, and he shares that glory with us. Let's pray. Jesus, your glory is great and And amazing, and my concern is that uh, I have not been able to find the words to communicate that, and we have not seen it clearly enough this morning. And yet, Lord, maybe just dimly, but we do see it, we do recognize it. Or by the work of your spirit, would you reveal it to us and capture our hearts and our lives by your glory? That the brightness of that would throw everything else into the shadows. 
Lord, we don't just ask for that for some kind of spiritual experience that is great and wonderful and doesn't change us or whatever, but we ask that so that we may be captivated by you and so our whole lives might be transformed and changed and we might follow you and follow your way and invest in your kingdom. Knowing that the fullness of the glory that we see in part now we will have for eternity one day and we will know fully, we will hear more clearly, we will see with crystal clear clarity. Lord, give us faith to see now that glory that you have. Amen.